0: It's Wednesday, September the 23rd, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, political, and geopolitical implications in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as a Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. Now, a week from now, we will be turning the calendar to October, which means that we will have uh, done Goodfellows for six months now. Those of you who've been with us from the beginning, we sure appreciate your loyalty. We hope you are giving you the show that you feel you deserve. Those of you watching for the first time, what you're about to see for the course of the next hour or so is a conversation between three Hoover Institution Senior Fellows, or Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them, uh, but three Senior Fellows offering their unique insights to what may lie ahead in these uncertain times. Now, let's meet the good fellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist, and he is the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. John, a good Wednesday to you. Good to see you. Good to see you too, my friend. Our second good fellow joining us from his fortress in the, in the forest primeval is Neil Ferguson. Neil's a renowned historian and author. He's also a columnist, a documentarian, the list goes on. And he just happens to be the Hoover
1: Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil, how are you today? Very well indeed, and looking forward to a conversation with a real applied historian, somebody who did more than study history but actually applied it in the corridors of power.
0: And that leads us to our good fellow in the center of our conversation today, and that is General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Ford Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. He also, in a past life, was a national security advisor to the President of the United States, and he is the author of a new book, Battlegrounds. H.R., welcome back to Goodfellows.
2: Hey Bill, thanks. John and Neil, great to be with
0: all of you. So HR, I'm gonna ask the lead question here. It's a pretty simple one. The first 12 words in the, in the book in the preface, quote, this is not the book that most people wanted me to write. I know what you're getting at here. You're writing a book that involves Donald Trump. People want you to run over Donald Trump. They want you to back up and run over him again. How sir, can you write a book about Donald Trump 41 days from the election and expect an academic conversation to ensue?
2: Well, Bill, that's that's what I, what I hope we're about to do, and you know, I, I really just thought it wouldn't be useful to, to produce another tell-all, another palace intrigue book about the Trump administration. And what I hope to do is is transcend what we see these days of the, of this really vitriolic, partisan uh, debates that are that are ongoing, because you know these crucial challenges to our security and our prosperity haven't gone away. And and I think it, I think it's important for all of us to try to transcend that vitriol and get to a better understanding of these crucial challenges. And then, of course, have respectful discussions like we do on Good Goodfellows about, about what we can, what we can do to, to build a better future for generations to come.
0: Now, be honest, which is less stressful, leading troops in a battle or dealing with the likes of Stephen Colbert? <laughs> well, the, 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 you
2: know, Clausewitz said that the courage is of two forms, of uh, physical and moral, and of the two, moral is, is the more difficult. <laughs> to, to manifest so but I, I i really enjoyed the conversations about the book so far and you know people come at it from all different perspectives but what i've sensed I just initially anyway bill is that mm-hmm. people are kind of ready for, for something that it isn't really part of this you know of, of this vitriolic you know partisan discussion and and i think people are ready as you can see from our viewers of uh, uh, good fellows you know with the numbers going up i think because we do have substantive discussions and i think uh, there's a real desire for that, and and sadly, there's a real absence of that uh, in much of the media today.
0: Right now, uh, speaking on behalf of the other good fellows, the the book is terrific, HR. And I uh, what caught my attention was review. I think it was a National Interest. The headline was that quote: "We're in a fight for the soul of America's foreign policy." Do you do you agree with that assessment, HR? And if so, what is the present day soul of American foreign policy? Well, I I do agree
2: with the bill. And and what I, what I try to describe is. It is the emotional impetus behind foreign policy as it as it grew out of the you know the victory of the of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the lopsided victory uh over uh over Iraq in the Gulf War and returning Kuwait to the status quo ante. And the nineties, I think, were a period of tremendous optimism. It was a decade of sustained economic growth. And and that optimism, I think, led to over-optimism and complacency in foreign policy. There were a number of a number of assumptions we made during that period of time. One of those was that there was an arc of history that guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian uh, systems and, and of our free market economic system over, you know, over statist or mercantilist models. Uh, it, it, another, I think another assumption was that, that our military, having demonstrated tremendous prowess during the Gulf War, was going to be unmatched, right? Future wars mm-hmm. would be fast, cheap, and, and efficient. And, and great power competition was a relic of the past, right? There was going to be a a condominium, a condominium of nations, uh, and and we saw the you know the, the advent of some of these terms like global governance and so forth, so forth. But then I think it was a setup. All that was a setup for for some of the shocks and disappointments of of the early two thousands. Of course, the mass murder attacks of nine eleven demonstrated that that our our enemies you know have the option to fight us asymmetrically, right? And and they used box cutters and airplanes to to kill nearly three thousand innocents and. And take trillions of dollars out of the U.S. economy. Uh, and then we had the unanticipated length and difficulties of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan in large measure because we went into those wars with a short-term, short-war mentality. And then the 2008 financial crisis, and a lot we've talked about a lot of this on, on Goodfellas, that shook our confidence. Right. And that pendulum swung, right, from overconfidence and, and maybe a failure to consider the risks and costs of action to, I believe, resignation really almost under the Obama administration and a failure to consider enough uh, the, the risk and costs of inaction. So uh, the, uh, the book is an argument for like something in the middle, Bill.
3: It may, it's not, um, I, I don't think fight for the soul is a good way of characterizing the book. Because if you say there's a fight, there's the good guys and the bad guys. There's no good guys here. Uh, <laughs> what you describe <laughs> is a country that uh, is tearing itself apart, and that both sides, if the sides are Democrat and Republican or, or whatever, that, that all of the country is... Letting our foreign policy wander off into incompetence and and letting our adversaries uh, cause us trouble. And your book is is very is very much not a fight. You're, it's a call to action, to duty, to reform, to bipartisan. Let's get this together. But it's absolutely not about a fight, which I think is a great thing. Part about it. Uh, the other great part about it, if I just sneak in one, is is that. Uh, you've lost your chops as an academic historian because you write it so concisely and briefly and well. And, and all the academic history, I'm also accepting my colleague Neil here, well, the academic history I read these days goes on and on and on and has to repeat itself and fill it with big, big, big words. And, and, and you just failed on that dimension.
2: <laughs> well, thanks. I've got well, I've got great role models at, at Hoover and to, to try to aspire to.
1: So I, I appreciate that, John, thanks. HR, can, can I ask a question about, about history, which might help us kind of frame this uh, book and, and the contribution that it makes? It's worth reminding uh, listeners and viewers that, that you're that unusual thing, a military man with a PhD and a PhD in history at that. Uh, that that uh, dissertation was published as Dereliction of Duty, Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Lies That Led to Vietnam. It's an extremely powerful and compelling book about the disastrous decision-making that led the Johnson administration to escalate uh, in Vietnam. And, and I sense, uh, as I as I read your new book, that that the U.S. is still kind of learning the lessons of Vietnam. We thought we'd learned them. We thought, I think, uh, uh, certainly at the time of the first Gulf War, that we'd laid the ghost of Vietnam to rest. But it kind of came on back in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and I wondered if... You know before we get into the recent past and and specifically the the trump administration we, we should spend a little bit of time on on this this strange Vietnam complex that that we thought we'd got rid of and then it came back in iraq and and in afghanistan right.
2: well, hey, well, that well thanks neil I, I I do believe that that the Vietnam syndrome gets so kind of back with uh, with the vengeance of these days. Uh, I do think that after the Gulf War we forgot some of the lessons of 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 Vietnam and in particular. recognition that war is an extension of politics. So everything that you do in war has to be aimed at achieving a sustainable political outcome uh, and and an outcome that that addresses what what brought you into the conflict to begin with and is consistent with your your vital interests. And and, and we we forgot that, I think, as we we fought in Afghanistan and Iraq in the early stages of those wars. Uh, We we had great military victories initially in terms of driving the, the Taliban out of Kabul or collapsing Saddam Hussein's regime. But we didn't give due consideration and planning to the consolidation of those gains and and, and an effort to to get to a sustainable outcome. So we forgot that war is is political. I think we also forgot that war is human. What I I write about in Dereliction of Duty is is how so many of the policymakers, Robert McNamara in particular, the whiz kids in the Pentagon, they viewed Ho Chi Minh through the lens of the reasonable man theory of English common law. And they assumed that Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnamese communists would respond exactly as they as a reasonable man would. And and of course we, we didn't pay enough attention to the ideology and the emotions that, that drove the other, the Vietnamese communists and their leadership. And I think we also didn't pay adequate attention to that to that as well, in terms of what what is really the what are the sources of strength and support uh, for our enemies, jihadist terrorists in, in both Afghanistan uh and Iraq, as well as the insurgencies that grew that grew around these terrorist groups.
3: If I could push you on this though a little bit. Um Uh, because the book is beautiful on this and you you describe how a war needs to have a set of aims clearly delineated and you know when you're going (laughs) to stop. You describe a disconnect between the politicians back home and what you learned on the ground, though you didn't really tell us exactly what that disconnect was. So I'm going to invite some some expansion on that. Um, But I'd I'd be curious what the alternative. I mean, there's another historical view that this is the curse of the late imperial power. Uh, the Roman Empire spent centuries um, basically just putting out fires on the border. Uh, the Gauls, the, the, the barbarians invade, there's trouble in Syria or Israel, what we call now Israel and some tribe on the invades. And, and it's not clear that we have It's certainly in these cases, we don't have a clear political goal. It's it's been what we've been trying to do all all throughout the Cold War, which is back to the status quo, Uh, put out the fire, keep going some government that we know is completely incompetent, but we don't have the will or desire. I mean, people talked about in Iraq, okay, let's just put in a UN mandate run the damn country for 20 years and and uh, that might have worked, but it's not clear America had the desire for that. Um, so let's be a little more specific in this situation where the political desire is just to put out the fire uh, and get back to status quo ante and you don't have the the political desire to go in invade, run the country for 20 years and and let something genuine, you know, get the institutions of democracy going again. You know, sort of what we did in Germany after World War II, although they had good institutions to start with, which helped a lot. Uh, So let's be a little more specific about how maybe the Vietnam syndrome is not a matter of choice. It's a matter of circumstance that late imperial powers are kind of stuck with.
2: Right. Well, John, this is a really important question, because what, what I what I hear today is, is really a false dilemma between either really not doing anything to shape uh, the outcome uh, of, of a conflict and, and get to a sustainable political outcome, or this you know, this kind of idealized view of nation building, right? The creation of, of countries in our image, which is, which is just as impractical. And I, I think that, uh, for example, in, in Afghanistan, I mean, Afghanistan is not gonna become Denmark, okay? It's just it's not gonna be, it's gonna be Afghanistan. And I think in Afghanistan, as an example, Really, we won, and, and I think what what Afghanistan requires is a sustained commitment, though, to strengthen, to really harden Afghanistan against the regenerative capacity of the Taliban and unterrorist organizations associated with it that lies across the border in Pakistan. So that's a long-term commitment, but it doesn't have to be of massive scale or be that expensive. I, I think it's worth noting, you know, that that we've lost, you know, ten incredibly, you know. Uh, valuable courageous soldiers in our, in our in our in our military this year but every day 30 Afghan soldiers or police give their lives to protect the freedoms that they've enjoyed since the collapse of the Taliban in in 2001 in Iraq what what, what do we want for Iraq we want Iraq to be maybe stable and not aligned with Iran right so I think realistic pretty, objectives yeah. but what we don't want is, is something like Libya I think what's interesting <laughs> I think John is like you know the Obama administration uh, defined their po- foreign policy mainly based on the president's opposition, President Obama's opposition to the invasion of Iraq. And so they, they were determined to avoid what they saw as the mistakes of the Bush administration. But then what they did is they, they actually surpassed them in Libya by, by acting in, uh, to, to, to help depose Gaddafi and then doing really nothing. To shape the the, the outcome in the wake of of the So let's
3: not call it Vietnam syndrome, because Vietnam had its own set of pathologies, but the pathology was certainly not an unwillingness to throw lives and treasure at things, which we did in abundance. Uh, It's it's Iraq syndrome. It's uh, go in, hope for the quick military victory, which we achieved, but then not to have the strength political vision for the uh, to win the peace, to steadfastly do the much smaller, we're not arguing for a continued war, but we are arguing for a continued high level of engagement. And that seems to be what over and over again, we're unable to do is to keep up the, the low, but, but important level of engagement to achieve stated and limited political goals in these right. places. No, it's not gonna be Denmark. Yeah. Uh, but you need something stable uh that is not gonna trouble its neighbors too much uh and that's enough and that seems that the 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 fecklessness of our uh policy seems to be the problem, and that's a unique post two thousand um well maybe even some elements of the yugoslav war where, where drop some bombs and get out uh but it's certainly a post
2: cold war phenomenon right and and the point I try to make is hey, there just really aren't any short term solutions to long term problems right and remember you mentioned the balkans i mean the the you know the 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 Bosnia mission was supposed to be one year right and and uh you know we're we're still there <laughs> so so i think I think that but at a very low level, right and 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 really it's a military engagement to sustain a diplomatic effort and and uh I, I tell the story about uh, about the disengagement from Iraq in December of 2001, and Vice President Biden calls up uh, President Obama and says, "Thank
1: 2011, you."
2: 2011 oh, HR. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 2011. Sorry, <laughs> 2011, um, and says, "Thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war." Right, and and um, and of course, wars don't end when one side disengages. And what we what we saw you know, three years later, um, a little bit over three years later, was was ISIS now in control of territory the size of uh, of Britain. Right? And and uh, and and visiting upon the people of the region a humanitarian catastrophe, uh, and and an effort to to establish the caliphate and to use that as a you know, as a launching pad for attacks against all civilized people. So I think you know, I, th- I think uh, we have to be capable of of developing and 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 uh, and sustaining a sensible, reasonable approach to foreign policy uh, that that is consistent maybe across multiple multiple administrations.
1: H.R., when I heard that uh, you'd been offered the job of National Security Advisor, uh, my expectation was that you would accept, despite the obvious downside risks of a job in the Trump administration, because you were so dissatisfied with the direction that foreign policy had taken under President Obama. And... In particular, I guess you saw an opportunity to redefine national security strategy, which had gone, I think, quite badly off the rails, especially in the second Obama term. Now, you alluded to just a couple of the things that went wrong. Uh, Iraq, uh, you alluded to Libya, briefly mentioned Syria, but but would it be worth just framing your decision to serve uh, in the Trump administration in terms of what had gone wrong with foreign policy in the preceding eight years, which you wanted to try and fix. Right.
2: Well, well thanks, Neil. You know, I, I've been on the receiving end in places like Afghanistan and Iraq of, of plans and policies that were based on fantasy in Washington <laughs> instead of reality on the ground. And, and our friend, Joel Rayburn, you know, serving in the administration, the state department now, a really wonderful officer, my, my trusty sidekick on many of these missions and, and also a dear friend as, as I was with Bwad uh, Jami and, and, uh, and Michelle and, and so, and and um he used to say you know he used to say uh, that that you know we're in Iraq but this policy is based on my Iraq and my Iraq is whatever you would like you would like it to be and this is this idea in the book of of strategic narcissism the tendency to define the world as we'd like it to be and it is based is sort of wishful thinking right and but it turns into self delusion and in war, you know, an endeavor that involves life and death. I mean, at, at, you know, when the stakes are that high, um, it, it's it's very serious. It's a very serious shortcoming. So, what I hope to do when I took the job is is to is to really make what what are many of these implicit and flawed assumptions that underpinned our policies explicit and subject them to some rigorous analysis, and then to try to understand these crucial challenges to our security, whether it's the aggression of the Chinese Communist Party, whether it's Putin's effort to kind of disrupt us and bring us all down and shake our confidence in, in who we are as a people and in our democratic principles and institutions, whether it's Iran and its continuation of its four decade long proxy war against us, or, or, or North Korea, they're trying to arm itself with the most destructive weapons on earth. But to, to begin with a framing of that challenge, to try to understand it on its own terms and in part from the perspective of the other, of our rivals and our adversaries. And then to view that challenge, as, as John has, has, I think, suggested, through the lens of our vital interests and answer the question that, you know, Donald Trump would ask all the time. Hey, so what? What's in it for us? Why do we care, right? And and then th- and then through through that process to establish overarching goals and objectives. But I think what was really important in the process we put into place is we replaced these unrealistic and flawed assumptions with assumptions i think were fundamentally sound and we always included an assumption in, in in connection with what is the influence that we have what is the agency or authorship over the future that we think we have over the over this this particular challenge and we being you know, the united states and like-minded partners so i i think we did put a, a very rigorous and, and helpful to the president process in place i don't know if it's if it's still going on uh but but it did as you suggested neil i think we we're succeeding. I'm very proud of our team and 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 uh, and the leadership across the administration for putting into place some very long overdue adjustments, really radical shifts in our foreign policy uh, in that in that first year of the Trump administration. So, we,
3: need to, we need to move on, but I, I do want to leave hanging. I don't think we've really solved the problem here. The Vietnam problem, the Afghanistan problem, the Iraq problem, the Libya problem, the Syria problem. There comes a moment where the U.S. decides it's not worth it anymore. Right. Now, maybe that that decision is we should have kept investing lives mm-hmm. and treasure in these places, but there comes a moment where you want to pull out. And pulling out is always a catastrophe. Uh, abandoning our friends in Syria was a catastrophe. Uh, lines in sand that we didn't mean to keep was a catastrophe. I want to be completely bipartisan about this. And I don't think we've solved the question of when it is, you know, maybe we shouldn't, you know, just find the strength to keep going, but when it's, when it's inevitable that you're going to pull out, how do you pull out without catastrophe in the wake? That, that I think is a hanging uh, question. Right. Now, let's move on to the, the, these big power questions are really the heart of the book. And, and, right, right. and, and HR, H.R., I'd like you to focus on two battlegrounds in your experiences
0: with these nations, for they present different battles in the United States. One is Russia, which you describe as a hybrid war. The other is China, which, as Dr. Ferguson will tell you, is a Cold War. It's an economic struggle, a potential military struggle. Uh, and let's cue up a clip uh, from a speech that you gave, your farewell speech, if we can call it that, where you talk about Russia.
2: So for too long, some nations have looked the other way in the face of these threats. Russia brazenly and implausibly denies its actions. And we have failed to impose sufficient costs. The Kremlin's confidence has grown as its agents conduct their sustained campaigns to undermine our confidence in ourselves and in one another.
0: H.R., you suggest in the book that the last three administrations have gotten Russia wrong. What don't they get right?
2: I think it has it has to do with this wishful thinking. Uh, what do they get right, did you say, Bill, or what don't they get right? What, 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 would do, we, what do we fail to see? Why do three well, administrations I, I, get it wrong? I think we fail to consider adequately what drives Vladimir Putin, right? Vladimir Putin came in power into power at the turn of the century. He plans to stay in power until 2036. And, and he is driven by a sense of honor lost as the Soviet Union collapsed, and he is driven to, to restore Russia to national greatness. Now, he's got a problem with that. He has a problem with that because, you know, the, the Russian economy is the, is the size of Texas's economy. Um, you know, he has real problems associated with, uh, with not only economic, but demographic trends, uh, as, and the collapse of oil has complicated things for him as well as the COVID-19 crisis. But what, but what his aspiration is, is not to make Russia Better than the United States or stronger than the European Union, but to drag everybody else down. What, what Vladimir Putin hopes is that he'll be essentially the last man standing, right. uh, and and so he's waging this you know this very you know disruptive uh, disruptive campaign uh, in which what he hopes to do is divide us from each other, divide us you know, within Europe, within the transatlantic relationship, and the communities with our, our, within our own country. I mean, uh, the, the the emphasis has been on dividing us on issues. Of, of race and and on policy issues like like gun control or immigration, and uh, and so we have to be cognizant of this and we have to pull the curtain back on it. And then, as I mentioned in that talk, we we, we all of us really across the free world have to impose greater costs on Russia. And as we've seen, he's he's, he's he seems to be undeterred as as he's positioning forces on the border of Belarus now and and uh, and just recently poisoned uh, Mr. Navalny. His 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 his. Uh, his greatest political rival uh, within Russia, with uh, with this nerve agent, or at least it appears he appears to have done so, <laughs> and uh, and so and so, I, I think this is still relevant today. These observations about what drives Putin and and what we have to do to to impose costs on him beyond costs that he might factor in uh, at the beginning of these decisions.
3: I, so, um, this was a part where I agreed with only ninety nine percent of the book. Uh, <laughs> Um, and you said, let me see if I can, I can find the quote that I think summarizes that Russians uh, are polarizing society and creating a con- crisis of confidence in democratic process and institutions. I submit the US is perfectly capable of tearing itself to shreds without any help from the Russians. And they're kind of throwing some, some sand in the gears where they can, but uh, with our partisanship, we would not be just singing Kumbaya with each other if it weren't for the Russians. Uh, you know, they're throwing spitballs at us, but, um, you know, the, 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 our lack of unity is not just, uh, due to them, but, and that, that, uh, uh I, I wish we could get together and not fight so much, but I don't think getting rid of Russian bots is, is going to solve that problem. What I got from your book was a, a very important lesson, understand your enemy. <laughs> understand his strengths and your weaknesses, but I felt you were a little bit taking too seriously their propaganda for their actual desires. Uh, Why does Russia want greatness? Because it wants greatness or because what Vladimir Putin really wants is to wake up tomorrow morning uh, in his own bed and not torn to shreds the way most dictators end up? Uh, Towards the end, and, and where there is a tendency in military and national security affairs to Uh, overestimate the strength and the unity of our opponents. Uh, The missile gap is a primary example, the Red Scare, uh, the CIA who never understood how weak the Soviet Union was. So I do think there's a tendency to overestimate the strength and unity of purpose, to take too seriously their propaganda and to overestimate their influence on our elections, after all the Russian fake news was a tiny fraction of the fake news happily generated by Americans and and our political parties. But you also noticed in the book, I think the most revealing part was where towards the end you had, what should we do about it? And part was stop fighting with each other. Yeah, that's nice, but it's not gonna happen. But you got to the point of where are Russia's weaknesses? What is Vladimir Putin's fears? Ah, and the most important one that you mentioned was his fear of the truth. And I just wanted to highlight that of all the steps you take towards the end, the one that seemed to me most likely that we could do, as opposed to all get along and stop fighting, uh, and that most likely to have effect is the one where you notice what he fears most is the truth, the truth about his personal finances, the truth about what's going on in Russia. This isn't hard to do. You don't need a lot of divisions to do that. But um, that seemed like the most productive way to undermine, As you know, sanctions. You said put in costs. Well, you put extra costs into a system like this where he knows he has to gin up foreign, you know, why is he doing this greatness? Cause he needs to gin up some foreign adversary to keep himself in power domestically. Uh, we've been putting sanctions on North Korea and Cuba for a long time without much uh, effect, but, but going in there and just telling the truth uh, that seemed to me like it, it, what I love about it is it, it comes from your precept of understand his weaknesses. Understand the internal divisions, not just understand the propaganda.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, John, John. I think I think those uh, the, the dissatisfaction with Putin is is growing now as well, and you know, we saw it in in uh, really last year, carrying over to this year in the eastern part of the country. Now, um, it, it is it, it is a weakness. He he does sit, as you mentioned, you know, atop of the, this kind of the, this patronage network, right, where he is. It's kind of it's kind of a protection racket. Right. So <laughs> Putin has dirt on everybody. And so he keeps them from from kind of killing each other. Uh, and 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 they keep him in power because it's in all of their interests so they can continue to do business. And uh, and you just saw, I think, an example of sanctions that are appropriate and, and might be useful on Prigozhin. This is, you know, the so-called Putin chef that were just put in place yesterday, because what Russia is actually using kind of a new form of competition now by using these companies, you know, they're, they're masquerading as private companies, but they're really arms of the Russian government. And Prigozhin is one of these guys who ran, he ran the internet research agency among these other mercenary groups that he's, he sits on top of. And um, and I think it's just part of, not just the, the, the economic effect or the financial effect of the sanction, but what these sanctions do also help with is pulling the curtain back on the operation, you know, and, and, and no, no longer allowing them to uh, to, to, to engage in, in, uh, in what my British uh, counterpart Mark Sedwell would call implausible deniability.
1: <laughs> I kind of agree more with HR on this issue of Russian interference uh, uh, in our political system. It troubles me greatly that we haven't really done much to stop it uh, since 2016, and it's going on right now in another election year. But But clearly, it's only one of the ways in which Russia poses a threat. I mean, Russia has become. Uh, really for the first time uh, since the 1970s, uh, a power-broking troublemaker uh, in the Middle East. And of course, on President Obama's watch, shortly after he said he didn't need anyone like George Kennan to advise him, uh, it was Russia that invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea in violation of international law. But let's face it, I'm sure you'd agree, HR, uh, it's the junior partner to China if we're thinking about the great power rivals that the United States currently faces, and it's a much weaker junior partner. Uh, Indeed, it's almost uh, in a situation of subservience to China uh, in in Central Asia, in what used to be Russia's backyard, I, I think we need to turn to China now. It's been a bone of contention on fellows from the very outset because John is a notorious uh, China dove, and you and I, HR, uh, agree <laughs> that we are up against some uh, very serious uh, geopolitical uh, competition here. But I think we should we should talk about the way you steered a new direction in US foreign policy in your national security strategy document. December 2017, I think I'm getting the date right. And I think future historians will look back and say that was a real turning point in US foreign policy after decades going all the way back to Richard Nixon when it had seemed like a very smart strategy for the United States uh, to, to be on good terms with China. I'd like you to talk a little bit about how big a change that was. I remember being absolutely amazed when I compared your national security strategy with the last one of the Obama administration, which I think was largely Susan Rice's work, which was uh, absolutely like like night and day because on China, the Obama administration had essentially given up and and appeared, I think on the point of acquiescing in Chinese predominance in the Asia Pacific region. So let's talk a bit about that and, and where you see it going from here. For me, the big question that your book left unanswered was, do we end up in the Thucydides trap, to use Graham Allison's phrase? Does our strategy go wrong? And I think it would go wrong if it ends up in a hot war with China, whether over the South China Sea or over the Taiwan Strait. There's lots about Taiwan in the book, but you leave me uncertain where you think we're going to end up. Uh, and, And is there a possibility, putting it really simply, that Cold War turns to hot war?
2: Oh, gosh, well, Neil, it was it was a very big shift in policy. We were very conscious of that uh, on the on the principles committee of the National Security Council, which is the president's cabinet that comes together. And as I mentioned, we put in this process that so that we could frame problems first, and we call these principles small group framing sessions, right? And and so uh, what we did is we developed a very succinct, you know, five page paper. That described the, the challenge associated with the Chinese Communist Party and its various forms of aggression, inventoried our vital interests that were at stake and, and established some goals and objectives and, and then had a discussion. Do we have this do we have our understanding of this problem right before we began to talk about? Okay, what, what do we what do we do about it? And at the at the beginning of that meeting, I read a couple of excerpts from pre, previous administration's China policy and just made the observation. We're about to effect, I think, the greatest shift in U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, and and um, and really that shift was from what was and these labels sometimes are not very useful, but it was a from an approach of cooperation and engagement with China under the assumption that China, having been welcomed into the international order, uh, would play by the rules, would liberalize its economy, would liberalize its form of government, and yeah, you know, it was it was apparent, of course, that the the party under Xi Jinping especially and and our colleague Elizabeth Economy has written a great book about this called The Third Revolution, that that, that actually Xi Jinping had gone in the in the opposite direction. And so so we, we had to decide, okay, what 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 do we what do we do about it? And and the approach that we came down on was competition, right? We have to we have to re-enter arenas of competition that we vacated based on these flawed assumptions. These were economic arenas of, of competition, financial arenas of competition military arenas of competition and diplomatic uh, arenas of competition. And so I don't believe, I don't believe, uh, believe Neil, in this Thucydides trap, or at least the way most people interpret it. Uh, and and, and we, we have a choice beyond, uh, beyond complete passivity and accommodation uh, of the Chinese Communist Party's aggression and confrontation. And in fact, I believe we were on the path to confrontation because of the strategy of engagement and cooperation. It was during this strategy of trying to, you know, trying to placate the Chinese Communist Party that that they they, they engaged in the largest land grab, so to speak, in history in the South China Sea. Uh, for example, they began the, the 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 campaign of cultural genocide in, uh, in you know, in Xinjiang. Uh, they became more aggressive in, in other areas. And we're seeing a manifestation of that, even more pronounced manifestation of this aggression today. So. So anyway, Neil, I, I don't think I think what's important about the, the, the strategy and what I recommend in the book uh, is to is the competition is a way to avoid confrontation. The other aspect of I think what we have to do, and this is the title of one of the chapters, it's it's turning weakness into strength. I think everything that the Chinese Communist Party <laughs> views as a weakness, we ought to really try to reform ourselves and make it into our greatest strength and and that includes our our free market ec- economic system john it also it also includes free trade you know, too <laughs> it includes freedom of speech right and and of course freedom of speech should be a strength but but the but the the, the places we go to for authoritative you know information and and, and 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 fair analysis i mean that space is diminishing and you know you've written a, a great book on on that on the tower and the square and, and, I, and, and I but I but rule of law. Right. The Chinese Communist Party fears rule of law because there's only one rule. And that's the rule of the of the party. So strengthening rule of law, strengthening really processes that allow people to have a say in how they're governed. Right. And, and, and so so I, I think that we have a way ahead on competition
1: that doesn't lead to confrontation. But let me press you a bit, because it seems to me that there's been a very interesting development in the foreign policy community since you left office, Uh, and that is a bipartisan consensus has emerged that we should be even more uh, hawkish uh, on specific issues such as Taiwan. Uh, Richard Haass just published an article in Foreign Affairs saying We've got to end strategic ambiguity and make our commitment to Taiwan unambiguous. Michelle Flournoy is essentially writing, saying a Biden administration would be even tougher on these issues than the Trump administration has been. And what I sense here is, is not necessarily something that was uh, intended in your national security strategy. What I sense here is a ratcheting up of commitments, which potentially could lead uh, to our bluff being cold. I think Misha Oslin's recent essay uh, on the the war of of 2025, in which he envisages rather satirically a President Newsom uh, presiding over a strategic debacle because the U.S. finds itself having to honor some commitments either in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait, and it all goes wrong. This really troubled me when I read it because it had a plausible ring to it. But where Republicans may make uh, the kind of strategic Uh, shift that you've uh, brought about, Democrats kind of take literally uh, commitments of the sort that the U.S. has made to Taiwan and might find themselves obligated to to act even after a successful Chinese invasion. So I want to talk a little bit about this issue because it worries me a lot. In fact, it it struck me when I was reading your book, and I'd, I'd read originally draft chapters, but I got to this part that I hadn't read before where you say that Taiwan may represent the most, I'm going to quote you here, the most dangerous flashpoint for war. I think that's only got more true, only got more dangerous since you wrote those words. Um, is this something that concerns you or do you think we should make our commitment to Taiwan unambiguous?
3: Can I jump in? On, I just want to amplify the question because this is one of the most important. I mean, one of the prime things you want, don't want to do is make empty threats. And uh, I, I really, you know, here I'll be the hawk. Uh, we made a written guarantee of territorial integrity to Ukraine, and then in they go, and well, we've got some sanctions, but no one's taking it seriously. It's very easy for, a Taiwan, for a China to think, well, they'll never do it. Um, the important thing in the Cold War was just enough fear uh, that thing, that it, to avoid miscalculation. But I think China could easily say, America's not really gonna do anything about this um we've read we've discussed a couple of uh, reports between ourselves uh, in the last couple weeks one is uh, several evaluations that says the us and taiwan will not win a war against you know a hypersonic missile boom goes the aircraft carriers and the us won't expose the aircraft carriers and that taiwan is not prepared to win a war uh to to even defend itself so i think i think that the danger of making threats and commitments that you don't intend to keep uh, lines in the sand um, uh, is is that's an invitation to uh, to trouble that we seem to be uh, heading into. Uh, so now you yeah. got like seven questions on Taiwan, right. all right. Well, I
2: mean, what I think the, I think the one of the a question that that, is, uh, that underpins uh, this discussion is is what is necessary to deter the People's Liberation Army and the Chinese Communist Party so we prevent a conflict, right? and and, and what actions should we avoid? such that we don't precipitate a conflict while attempting to, to deter one. And I think, of course, there are some, certain things that I think that are very easy to do and apparent that we should do, which is strengthening uh, the, our, our regional uh, defense cooperation and making sure that we have the capabilities in that theater such that the, the when the People's Liberation Army looks at us, the U.S. and its, its, its treaty allies and other partners, says, well, I don't, think, I don't think we can really pull this off, right? We might not be able to accomplish our objectives on, on Taiwan by, through a use of force. But deterrence, of course, is more than just capability, it's also the will to use it. And this gets to Neil's question. I don't think, Neil, there, there's, a, there's a reason to go beyond the recent actions of making public the six assurances to Taiwan. I think it's immensely important to, to continue the arms sales so that Taiwan takes responsibility for, for its, its, its own defense. And, uh, and, and I think I think if Taiwan makes those right, right choices it could develop some capabilities there it already has some that can impose a very high cost on the People's Liberation Army will that be sufficient uh, you know to, to deter uh, to, to deter China the, the the recognition that the United States and its partners have these capabilities and and potentially the will to use it, because I think strategic ambiguity should be that for the Chinese, right? The Chinese should say, wow, no, I don't know, is the United States going to come in to defend Taiwan or, or not? And actually, it's a little bit helpful too, for to how the Taiwanese wonder about that so they take more responsibility for their own defense, right? So, so I, I, think, I think that's an element of, of, the, of the question, but of the problem. But what I worry about these days is what if the PLA, what if the People's Liberation Army is believing the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda about how great they are? how they are coming out on top. What if they're watching the Wolf Warrior films, you know, and saying, well, okay, it's, t- it's time really to confront the United States. And we've already seen a lot of, you know, a lot of indicators of this, of this aggressive uh, mentality uh, with, you know, with aircraft flying irresponsibly, ships, um, you know, shining lasers to try to blind our pilots. I mean, there's all kinds of aggressive actions ongoing by the PLA, oriented at the United States, but also oriented uh, 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 on countries in, in the region as well. So I think you're right, uh, Neil, and uh, that that it is it is even more dangerous than when I, than I when I wrote that uh, paragraph or those paragraphs on Taiwan. Um, but I think the right course is the one the administration is taking right now. I, uh, the, uh, the the recommendation by Richard Hossett, it, it sort of struck me as kind of out of left field and 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 kind of unnecessary. I, I don't know. I'd love to hear what you think about it, John. What John and what you and Neil think about that question.
3: Well, you you make a threat if you absolutely resolutely intend to do something about it. And you use strategic ambiguity if you want, you know, they're not so sure that you can do it, but, but making threats that are empty is, is dangerous. I'd like to, what do you, just one simple, um, what do you think about recognizing Taiwan? You want to slap China in the face? Uh, that would be a big slap in the face. What do you think about that one?
2: Yeah, I, I just don't think it's necessary, right? I, I think that the, that the U.S. one China policy is, has worked. I think it can continue to work. I think an element of strategic ambiguity, maybe something to point out to the Chinese, is is you know, North Korea uh, and the Chinese and the, and the and the Soviet Union, by the way, didn't think the United States would intervene on behalf of South Korea in 1950, and we did, right? So, so, so I think don't don't uh, you know don't don't think that the United States will not you know, will not um, you know will not pay the price and bear the cost if if we consider it as in as in our interest. The other example is is really the the attack on Pearl Harbor and and Japan's centripetal offensive uh, in in 1941, and under the theory the, the the Imperial Japan's theory that the United States didn't have the stomach for you know for penetrating uh, the the uh, the inner island chain and and threatening Japan. Well, we did. You know, we paid a high price for it, and and uh, and we we you know we are you know we should thank our fallen heroes for everything they did to defeat. Uh, and the sacrifices they made uh, to defeat Imperial Japan. So I think these are historical examples we can subtly point out to the Chinese and have the same deterrent effect without without you know recognizing uh, Taiwan.
3: So instead of one big invasion, why is China not doing what you accuse Russia of doing? It seemed like the natural thing would be what we're not. We're good at one big invasion; we respond. What we're not really good at is a slow campaign of uh, of terrorism, disinformation. Right. Um, it, they it,
1: didn't do know. the terrorism, John, but they've certainly been doing the disinformation. Oh yeah, there's been a slow and sustained effort by the PRC to penetrate uh, taiwan and it failed as as hr points out in the book the january election was a tremendous failure from the vantage point of of uh, of beijing and i think that's that's another thing that that makes me concerned that they've realized that that sort of soft power approach has actually failed uh, you know, when you were talking there, H.R., I was thinking how, how applied history can can kind of come back and slap you in the face, because it seems to me that one potential lesson of the last hundred years is that uh, that strategically ambiguous postures can actually get you into big wars. Uh, after all, you cited the example of Korea and indeed the, the, the example of the Pacific War. I would look at this from a British point of view. J- John made a good point earlier. You know, the U.S. is kind of where Britain was at the height of its power. Uh, perhaps when the power was beginning to wane a bit and uh, and the Brits felt that they were the weary uh, titan uh, with uh, just too much uh, on their on their shoulders, and I think what we learned from from hundred years of British history was that if you didn't make your commitments unambiguous, uh, whether to Belgium uh, in 1914, or Poland in, in 1939, or for that matter Czechoslovakia in 38, uh, you actually ended up in the in the big bad war. The thing I like about cold wars is 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 their coldness, uh, and what worries me most about the U.S. China relationship is this risk that it could turn hot. Uh, just as, of course, the Cold War turned hot over Korea, it could turn hot over Taiwan, and and I think this is the kind of thing that a Biden administration could really be blindsided by. Uh, you know, talking to Kissinger, your predecessor as National Security Advisor, back at the very beginning of that that U.S.-China uh, romance, I've been very struck by his concern on this issue, uh, and that he you know recognizes this Cold War scenario and sees Taiwan as as like you the the most likely flashpoint. So I guess I want to kind of throw a forward-looking question at you as we beginning beginning to run out of time. If you if you look ahead to 2021, what do you think your 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 successor whoever it is and whichever president uh, your successor is serving, is, is most likely to be grappling with. I mean, it might not be Taiwan. There might be some black swan crisis out there that we haven't even touched on in this conversation so far that could come along and suddenly dominate the way 9-11 came along. I mean, let's face it, hardly anyone except Richard Clark really expected that.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think there, there are a number of, of these you know, black black swans uh, that, that could emerge uh, I think that there, there could be there could be a, a significant you know crisis in, in the Middle East that makes the situation worse particularly associated with jihadist terrorist organizations who do get access to some of the most destructive weapons on earth and 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 this is associated with the, the problem of proliferation of, of these weapons I mean if Iran races to get a to get a bomb which it seems like they're kind of reactivating uh, this nuclear weapons program uh, this could of course uh, either one of two things. It could encourage uh, an Israeli Defense Force attack on on Iran's mm-hmm. uh, nuclear uh, capabilities, for example, and the beginning of a conflict that could escalate quite rapidly. But then it also could convince Saudi Arabia, for example, that they need a bomb too, and maybe they'll make good on what they probably have already arranged as a purchase of a weapon, maybe from Pakistan, for example. We also have you know flashpoints like South Asia, <laughs> you know, that's always always very high tension uh, between. Pakistan and India, but now there, there could be potentially even a three way conflict there as we see these aggressive actions by the people 's Liberation Army on the Himalayan frontier uh, with with India I mean these are all scenarios that are not that are not top of our mind now uh, but, but there, there are many others uh, as well i mean russia i I think you know uh, could become even more aggressive and and disruptive, especially if Putin thinks it's, it's necessary uh, to, to maybe quash uh, a, a, a movement for a representative government, for example, in, in Belarus, that could really test Europe and the United States' will to, to confront Russia um, and to deter even further aggression. I mean, there's so many scenarios I think we could, we could go through. What I try to do in the, in the book is to make, uh, in each of these areas, in each of these regions, a, a grounded projection into the, into the near future by, at first, understanding how the past produced the present, and, uh, but there can be, as, as Neil's alluding to, discontinuous you know, uh, change and, and threats that emerge. I think cyberspace, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time now, but, but we have real vulnerabilities in infrastructure, uh, uh, the, and, and we've already seen our adversaries become more and more capable, right? Russia is very capable in cyber-enabled information warfare. China is very capable, especially, I would say, in industrial espionage, cyber and, and espionage. North Korea is really good at, at, at criminal cyber activity, and Iran has been focusing, as has Russia and others, on, on disruption of, of, of infrastructure. The attacks that that, that Iran conducted a decade ago against our financial system, right? They've gotten a lot better since then. Uh, so, so I, I think that we have to we have to we have to recognize. I think, in particular, how interconnected our security our, our security concerns are, as, as to be the homeland. With developments overseas, and and what I'm concerned about, Neil and John, is like there is a real movement toward neo isolationism to to dis, to disengage from the world, and I think the object lesson we might take is with COVID nineteen, right? I mean, the best way to deal with a with a pandemic is to prevent it from becoming a pandemic, and to, and to and to combat that virus, contain it at its source, right? Thanks to the. Chinese Communist Party, we couldn't do that. But I think it's an analogy that may be simplistic, but it's useful to understand the threat from jihadist terrorism as well, or from nonproliferation.
3: If I could summarize, um, if you put yourself in the mind of all of our adversaries, as you have encouraged us to do, the natural thing to do after after a extremely contentious election, which we are virtually certain to go through, is to push the limits. To find, now Not to go invade Taiwan with aircraft carriers, and but let's do something in the South China Sea. Let's mess, uh, let, you wanna do something uh, deniable? You wanna do something which you think is short of uh, what they will respond to and find out what the limits of what they'll respond to are. Yes, mess with our infrastructure, a cyber attack, uh, uh, um, build something in the South China Sea and see what they do about it. Uh, harass an aircraft carrier, shoot off some missiles here and there. Um, you know, cause trouble everywhere you can, just short of what you think, and, and then test the limits. Because predictably, what America does is does not respond, does not respond, does not respond, and then someone gets overconfident and, and bombs Pearl Harbor, and now we're in huge trouble. So I think uh, what I'm following you is a prediction that I don't know what it's going to come from, but there's going to be a lot of trouble uh, as people test the limits and try to see do we mean it or not.
2: I think that's, I think that's right, John. You know, I, I don't know what you think about this too. I, I do think that COVID-19 has actually catalyzed a lot of these competitions, right? I think we're starting to see the, you know, the beginning of that already, right? Uh, you can see that with Putin's aggressive actions. We mentioned just the whole range of aggressive actions by the uh, Chinese. I, I think that Iran's kind of waiting out for the election. They're in a very difficult situation economically, but I'm, uh, but they, they are continuing, obviously the, the range of subversive activities across the region uh and north korea you know north north korea we've taken we've not really paid much attention to north korea lately uh but they're getting ready for you know a an big anniversary parade with lots of missiles again you know and and um and and the, the missile program and the and the nuclear program have have continued and so I, I, whatever whatever administration comes in you know or, or if it's a second trump administration or a new or a new biden administration, they will, I think, John, confront these challenges. And, and Neil, I just, you're, you're a great analyst of of these geostrategic trends.
1: Is that, is that consistent with your view? I've just been doing a book of my own, HR, which will probably come out next year. Uh, but one of its observations is that pandemics tend not to be followed by periods of, of peace and tranquility, though you might expect it. Uh, a society exhausted by... Uh, uh excess mortality wouldn't be looking for trouble but that's not, not actually what the record shows all the big pandemics have tended to be associated with periods of of geopolitical uh, turmoil uh and and the best example is that the, the black death coincides with the early phase of the hundred years war between uh, England and France, and I sometimes wonder if it's a hundred years war we're getting into here with uh, with China. But yeah, I think this is absolutely correct. And why your book is so timely. We're going to be dealing with, a, as I think John rightly said, a time of troubles in 2021. And it won't just be public health problems, it's going to be geopolitical problems.
0: So, HR, let me jump in here with the final question. And uh, sorry to cut you off, John, but we're running out of time the book is not about Donald Trump. It involves Donald Trump, but let's not talk about President Trump's legacy today. Let's instead talk about the legacy of H.R. McMaster, nearly 35 years of service to your country, a Lieutenant General, the 26th National Security Advisor of the President of the United States. How would you like to be remembered, and how do you think you made this a better world?
2: Well, I'll tell you, every day was a privilege to serve, and I hope what you do as you serve for that long is you leave behind Really, your, your 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 colleagues, your your comrades, who are continuing those those efforts within the military. In my case, or really across across government, and and, and I hope that uh, you know that your greatest legacy is is through like is, is through your fostering the development of, of others who will continue to carry the torch, right? And and I think in this in this second career, I'm hoping to continue to bolster the efforts of those I left behind once I retired. Uh, by, by providing I hope useful analysis of our most crucial challenges. I do want to say just quickly Bill, uh, as we wrap up here, uh, you know, I, I couldn't have written this book anywhere else but the Hoover Institution. And I'm just so grateful to my colleagues. I'm so grateful to the awesome students at Stanford who, uh, who helped do the research and who I worked with in kind of this, this seminar over this two year period. I mean, it's been very gratifying to see it, to see it completed now. I hope readers will judge it to have been worthwhile, but I just wanna say it has been really not an individual effort at all. I mean, Hoover to me is the best place to be for a scholar because of the colleagues that we have and because of the environment that that fosters sound analysis, uh, intellectual freedom. And I, I think, I hope the book is in keeping, and I write about this in the conclusion, I hope that Herbert Hoover would be proud of it (laughs) because I wrote it in the spirit of, of Hoover's mission.
3: Well, I got out of the book, um, something that I get out of your, your, your presence on Goodfellas, which I really appreciate. There's an advice to listen to people, to respect them, to understand their desires, their strengths and weaknesses, uh, when they're enemies and when they're friends to work together towards a better world and, uh, keep it up, buddy.
1: Thanks, John. Amen to that. Don't want to leave people thinking that uh, HR's book says nothing about the president. I counted 283 references to him. And I actually think in that sense, it's actually an important contribution to the history of the Trump administration. Too many of the books that have been produced by people in the last few years have been entirely full of palace intrigue and short on the strategy of the administration. What you've done here is to make it clear that there really was an extremely important strategic shift in 2017 under Donald Trump, and it has had lasting consequences that will continue on beyond his presidency. And for that reason, I think it's actually one of the most substantive contributions to the historiography on the Trump administration. And yeah, Herbert Hoover would very much approve of this book.
0: Hey, we're going to give Neil the last word. The book again, but H.R. McMaster, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. It is available by it now. And if you own a television, you're going to probably see H.R. McMaster on some channel. H.R. should give you a quad agare or something, given some of these shows going on right now. You're, you're a braver man than I. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Goodfellas. We'll be back a week from now with a new topic, a new conversation. On the behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, and today's author, H.R. McMaster, we hope you enjoyed the show. By all means, be safe, be careful, stay healthy. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week.